And we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together Let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. And then we read that Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such ones belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so Lord, we uh, come to you as little children. We come looking for grace and comfort and mercy. And Lord, we ask that this morning you'll banish all proud thoughts and attitudes from our hearts. Uh, Give us the hunger and the willingness to learn like little children from you. And Lord, we pray this morning that you'll pour out your grace upon us by your Spirit, uh, for your name's sake. Amen. Now, I can take you to the exact bench in the park in Sydney where I was sitting when one of my parents told me that they didn't think their marriage would last. And it didn't. I remember exactly where in our holiday house up the coast I was when I got the phone call from my brother saying that he was going to leave his wife. I remember the meal Adele and I were eating when we got a text message from good friends saying that she had found out that her husband and father to their newborn baby had been having an affair with a friend of hers from work. These things are etched deep in our memory, aren't they? If you've ever been there, these questions of divorce 
remarriage and the Bible passage today, they're deeply personal for us. There's no hiding that. And this is not just theory, this is painfully practical for lots of us. It might be a situation that you found yourself in, it might be the situation of your parents, it might even be the situation of your children. It might even, you might even be sitting there, and this might even be an option that you are considering, even right now, as things are difficult. And so when I come to speak on these questions about divorce, I could tell you the, the training I have in marriage preparation and in counselling. I could tell you about that. Or I could point to my own experience in both pastoral and personal in dealing with marriage breakdowns. Or I could tell you that I've done more than 20 weddings, and of all those weddings, not one of them has yet ended in divorce. That's a pretty good record, eh? Or I could say, you know, this year, Adele and my marriage, it becomes an adult, In May, we'll be married for 18 years. And so I could come here and present myself as an expert on the subject of marriage and divorce, like I've got the experience, that I've got the secret source, that I've got the formula to make it all work. But that's rubbish. We don't need to hear my words on this subject. We need to hear Jesus' words on this difficult and painful and personal topic. We need to hear his wise words. His challenging, yet compassionate words. We need His living and active Word to help shape us to understand what God's will is on this deeply personal topic. Before we dig into it, I need to flag up front that these words here in Matthew 19, these are not the final words of Jesus, the final words of the Bible on the, on the issues of uh, marriage and divorce. Uh, I can assure you, I can promise you, here's the guarantee this morning, you will leave here this morning with questions that go unanswered. There you go, how's that? This, this will not answer every question you've got on the topic. There are other parts of God's Word that speak about marriage and divorce. There are other parts of God's Word that will approach it from different angles and they'll be answering different questions. Uh, but these words here, they are still well worth us listening to carefully. Listening to carefully so that we can understand what Jesus is saying and so that we can understand what Jesus is not saying. And also, really importantly, we need to understand the tone in which Jesus speaks. Now, to understand the tone in which Jesus speaks, we need to remember the context in which this, this setting uh, comes up, which is why I thought it was important for us to read right the way through to verse 15. We won't look at those verses, but it's important for us to realize that straight after these tough questions about marriage and divorce, little children are brought to Jesus. And little children being brought to Jesus, they remind us of how this whole section began back at the beginning of chapter 18. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus started uh, telling us a bit more about his counter kingdom, his upside down kingdom, his kingdom that is unlike any of the kingdoms of this world. And the way that he started was by pointing to a little child. And the child there was an illustration of the nature of his kingdom. And it was a picture for us of how we enter into his kingdom. And he says, unless you take the lowly position of a child who trusts in me, then you'll never enter my kingdom. That's what Jesus said. And then he said, once you've entered the kingdom, we're to welcome others in the way that we've been welcomed. We're to, we're to welcome others like little children, like forgiven sinners like we are. And then Jesus says, as you live in my kingdom, I want you to have the heart of a shepherd, a shepherd who will not do anything to damage another member of the flock, a shepherd who will be willing to go to great lengths to bring back the stray. And last week we saw that Jesus, he wants his kingdom to be filled with forgiveness, for us to forgive others as God has forgiven us. And this is, it's in this context that, that, that Jesus is telling us about a kingdom that is marked by humility and it's marked by gentleness and it's marked by a willingness to forgive. And it's in that context we get this question. 
So, Jesus, what about divorce? Have a look with me in Matthew chapter 19. It'd be great if you have that part of the Bible open. Uh, We're going to begin there at verse 1. Verse 1, when Jesus has finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them. Some Pharisees came to test him. Now, the first little thing to notice, there's a shift in geography here. Jesus crosses the Jordan and he's entering into more hostile territory. Uh, He's entered into the region of Judea. He's actually on the way to Jerusalem. And and, and as kind of the the geography is getting more hostile, uh, the hostility becomes clear immediately. Uh, Those who have asked him questions here, the Pharisees who come to him, they're not asking him questions like little children seeking wisdom from a, a kind and loving father. Now, these people come and ask him questions because they want to destroy him. These religious authorities, they come to Jesus with a a carefully crafted question to put him in an awkward position. It says there in verse 3, some Pharisees came to test him. You see, these people, they're not at all interested in what Jesus has to say. They're here to catch him out. And so verse 3, here is their question. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Uh, now, this question, it's, it's posed to Jesus, it's presented to Jesus to put him in an awkward position, to, to, to create a real dilemma for him. The Pharisees ask a question, and it's a question that requires a yes or no answer, isn't it? Uh, is it lawful to do this, Jesus? Yes or no? Uh, but it's a very complex question. And they ask it in this way because whichever way Jesus answers, they've got a trap set for him. Uh, If he says yes, he'll contradict something he said back in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. If he says yes, it's lawful for any and every reason, then he'll be alienating from his following uh, more conservative parts of the crowd, ones who who had a different view on these things. But if Jesus says no, you you cannot divorce for any and every reason, uh, he would be putting himself in a difficult political situation. Uh, Herod Antipas, the king of the time, had, been, had just arrested and executed John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And the reason he was arrested and the reason he had his head chopped off was because John had spoken out against Herod's divorce and remarriage. And so the question of divorce and remarriage, it was a live one at the time. Does Jesus want to contradict himself? Does he want to alienate some of his followers? Or does he want to get himself into political trouble potentially losing his head. It was a live question at the time. There were, there were teachers uh, at the time, like Rabbi Hillel, uh, and he said that divorce could happen for any reason, almost any reason. He even said that the grounds for divorce could be a, a badly cooked meal. And so when you got home, if the dinner was burnt or the chicken wasn't cooked through or there's coriander where there ought not to be coriander, well, there you are. You can write your certificate of divorce. Uh, that's once too often. Uh, here's your certificate sorry, off you go. Now, I know some would consider that coriander uh, is grounds for divorce, Um, but there was another guy there, Rabbi Akbar. Uh, He said that divorce was allowed if you had a roving eye for a prettier woman. He said, you could say to your wife, I've met someone half my age and twice as attractive, here's your certificate of divorce and off you go. And it's into this setting comes this question from the Pharisees, divorce for any reason, Jesus? Yes or no? Well, how does Jesus answer? Well, again, we get classic Jesus. He takes control of the situation. He takes them back to what God has said right back at the beginning. 
And he says, you want to know about marriage and divorce and all of that? Well, you need to begin with God's original intentions for marriage. What were they? And so Jesus takes them and he takes us to God's intentions for marriage. And there are three things that I think uh, we, we need to see here. Uh, for those who are married or for those, uh, uh, for those who are married, the marriage relationship is to be a priority, it's to be physical and it's to be permanent is what Jesus says. The first is the priority of the marriage relationship, verses 4 and 5. Uh, verses 4 and 5. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Uh, now that word there, leave, it, it's more like the word forsake. It implies a transfer of your allegiance from your, from your birth family to your spouse. Uh, when people get married, there's this, this, the primary relational responsibility they have, it, it shifts from their family of origin to the new family that they've created under God. And that is to be a priority even before their job or their career or their friends, even before their parents, even before their children. The marriage relationship is to be the priority and there's not to be any mixed allegiances, says Jesus. Uh, I got an email this week from the Department of Internal Affairs. Uh, it was about our citizenship application. Uh, we lodged them, I don't know how long ago, paid a lot of money, and we just wait. And this is the first time we've ever heard anything back. Um, but there was a part of the email that was in bold and all caps. Uh, so it did look super professional, but, uh, you know, it's that shouty font that you get. Um, so it must be important. And it said this, it said, Please note, becoming a New Zealand citizen, and here's the bold and shouty bit, may affect your right to retain current, your current citizenship and passport. You see, there are some countries in the world that don't let you be a dual citizen. Uh, and so if you're to become a New Zealand citizen, you might have your other citizenship revoked. There are some countries that expect that your citizenship to their country is to be the priority. And they expect that you'll forsake all other allegiances, that you'll forsake all other citizenships that you have. And it's the same in marriage. God intended the marriage relationship to take priority. The second intention for marriage is that it is to be physical. Verse 5. Verse 5 again, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now this idea of one flesh, it's, it's, it's a clear and poetic description of the physical sexual union between one man and one woman. Uh, you see, the act of sex is designed to cement a couple together who have made that commitment to be uh, in a marriage relationship which takes priority. And I don't know whether you realize, but this is actually hardwired into our bodies. And when our couple have sex, their, their brain is flooded with the same brain chemicals that a mother gets when she's breastfeeding her baby. And these brain chemicals are there to develop a deep and intimate bond between two people. And so sex is not just for physical pleasure, and it's not just for making babies, even though those are really important parts to it. But here, Jesus is reminding us that sex is a physical union at the most intimate and vulnerable level that glues and binds a husband and wife together. Which is why it's sex outside of that marriage relationship that's a priority and that's uh, physical and that's permanent. Sex outside of that marriage relationship is so inappropriate and actually so dangerous for us. You see, to have sex with someone who is not your spouse, 
to bind yourself to them in the most intimate and vulnerable way. You're being fused together in a way that was only ever intended for marriage. Thirdly, Jesus reminds the Pharisees and reminds us that God's intention for marriage is for it to be permanent. Second half of verse 6. Verse 6, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Uh, Adele and I first met in a car park. Uh, It was outside the church youth group. Uh, I had such an impact on her that evening that she can't even remember it happening. Um, I I was pretty keen on her right from the beginning, but uh, she took a little bit longer to come around to the idea. It was about four years. Uh, But when we finally started dating, I was getting all these high fives from my mates at church for my persistence, for my persistence at getting us together. Uh, But on the 29th of May, 2004, uh, when that day rolled around and we were married, uh, that day it wasn't just my persistence that was joining us together. Uh, Jesus is saying that God was making that union. What God has joined together. That's why we read those words at a wedding, isn't it? God joins people together in marriage, and it's to be permanent. In its ideal form, it's to be for life. And so Jesus says, let no one separate. God's original intention for marriage is to be the priority. It's to be a physical union, and it's to be permanent. Now, there's a lot more that Jesus could say about marriage, uh, but, but this is what Jesus points to as he deals with the Pharisees' questions. God intended marriage to be a priority, to be physical, and to be permanent. And so, just for a moment, if you are married, can I just ask how you're going at these things? Uh, If you're married, how are you going at making your marriage a priority? A priority over everything else in your life, obviously apart from your relationship with God. Or is work, or sport, or the kids, or even the pull of your family or friends, is that taking over that original priority that ought to be to your spouse? Or how are you going at the physical aspect of your marriage? Is this something you're giving the time and the space and the investment that it needs? Or are you letting it fall by the wayside? Or how are you going at staying married, making it permanent? Are you nurturing your marriage, growing it, tending to it? Or is it being neglected and falling into a state of disrepair? Or more seriously, are you looking at your marriage and looking for the exit? Already planning your escape? If you're married, God intends your marriage to be the priority relationship, to be physically intimate, to be a permanent union. And if you need help in any aspect of that whatsoever, please, please reach out. The sooner you ask for help, the greater hope there is that there can be restoration and forgiveness. Most people only ask for help with their marriage when it's almost too late, when things are so far gone. There is nothing more we'd love to do than help you live out God's intention for marriage. So if you need help, please, please, please reach out. But the the Pharisees here in Matthew chapter 19, they are not satisfied. They want to ask Jesus another question. 
Remember, they're out to test Jesus, and they follow up with a second question. And I suspect that they've had this second question kind of prepared in advance. They knew they were going to ask this question, and it's a question about the law of Moses. Uh, So, Jesus, if God intended marriage to be a priority, to be physical and to be permanent, verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, actually, as they ask the question, they've kind of exposed themselves, really. They've exposed themselves as unwilling to listen to God's word. They've exposed themselves of having hard hearts and closed ears to what God has to say. You see, they say Moses commands divorce. But Jesus replies, Moses didn't command divorce. Verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. And why? Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. On one side here, we've got the, the, the Pharisees. They are being careless and flippant with God's word. They are taking a concession and turning it into a command. Uh, they're trying to exploit a loophole rather than live in obedience to God. And Jesus is saying here, he is saying that in some circumstances, in some circumstances, divorce is permitted. It's permitted because we live in a fallen and broken world. It's permitted because of our hard hearts. It's permitted because we live in a world corrupted by sin. It's committed because of the brokenness that we each bring into a marriage. Jesus is saying, God has made this concession. He has made it possible for there be certain circumstances where a marriage does end. But the Pharisees, they want to say, divorce, that's a good thing, right? That's something that we should embrace But it's not. Jesus says it's sad. When a couple divorces, it's tragic. It's painful. It's painful when what God has joined together is is torn apart for any reason. Now, verse 9 there, it says, it's important for us to see this. Verse 9 isn't a blanket prohibition against divorce. Uh, It acknowledges that it's sad and it's tragic and it's painful but there will be times and circumstances where it is permitted. The example that Jesus gives here is that of sexual immorality, where someone has broken that physical union, that one flesh bond of a marriage, and has united themselves with someone else. Uh, but that's not the only exception in the Bible. Uh, elsewhere in the Bible, we get other grounds on which divorce, divorce though painful and tragic, uh, it is permitted. I think you could add to those uh, kind of uh, when there is abuse or abandonment of a spouse. That tragic breaking of trust and intimacy in the marriage relationship can almost be impossible to repair. But it's also not to say that these things must lead to divorce either. And so the appropriateness of divorce and any remarriage after divorce, it's, 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 it's a matter for careful and godly wisdom for deep pastoral concern and discernment, rather than a a simple one-size-fits-all, one-dimensional application of a a law. Now, it's worth saying a few words a bit more broadly about divorce. Um, uh, I don't know where everyone in this room is at, uh, but in your situation, there might be deep sadness and regret of things that have happened in your past. You might be sitting there, whether you're, you're married, divorced, or single, or whatever, and you might be acutely aware that there are relationships in your life that you have really mucked up. And sadly, particularly when it comes to the question of divorce, churches haven't always helped on this front. 
I think it's fair to say that churches have generally treated divorced people very clumsily. That's probably a generous description even. I'm, I'm thinking of situations where I personally have really dropped the ball with a couple after their marriage broke down. Partly it was because it was so complicated and so messy and, and partly because I didn't know what to do to care for them at the time. But we've dropped the ball. And sometimes in churches we've treated people who've been divorced very ungraciously, without humility, without grace, without a willingness to forgive. And there's times that churches have behaved that have made people who've, who've been divorced feel like that is an unforgivable sin like that was an unrecoverable situation, that they just can't be trusted from now on. But the reality is, is that we are all guilty of sin before a holy God. The reality is that there is no one righteous, not even one. And so it's important for us to remember where Jesus is heading in Matthew's Gospel. You see, Jesus has crossed the Jordan. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And waiting for him in Jerusalem is the cross where he will pay the price for our sin. So that when we turn to him, we find a place of forgiveness where all of our wrongs can be completely wiped away. Where our shame can be a thing of the past. Where whatever part we might have had in a broken marriage, whatever sinful thing we might have done, Uh, where that is in the past and forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus. You see, that is why Jesus is going to Jerusalem, so that we can be washed clean, so that we can be made new, which means that the message of Jesus is good news. It's good news for sinners, people like you and me. It's good news for adulterers. It's good news for greedy people. It's good news for corrupt religious officials. It's good news for any sinner who comes and puts their trust in Jesus and they receive from him the real and deep and lasting forgiveness that only he can offer. And so this place, this place here, as we gather in the name of Jesus, it ought to be a place of grace. It ought to be a place of grace for anyone who comes looking for forgiveness in Jesus. For anyone. On the issue of divorce, you've probably still got a whole bunch of questions. Um, Now, we don't have our time this morning to work our way through it all, uh, but what I've got here is um, a paper uh, written by uh, a guy called uh, John Woodhouse. Um, He was the principal at the theological college I went to, uh, and hands down, I would say that this is the most helpful thing and balanced thing I've ever read on the subject of divorce and remarriage. And so, Um, I've got one here and there's about 15 copies on the table at the back. Um, If you want to read more, uh, then please grab that. Uh, Hopefully that'll answer a bunch of your questions. Uh, But back to Matthew 19. Uh, Despite what the Pharisees think, you know, despite what the Pharisees want, which is kind of an easy, lazy, kind of box-ticking kind of uh, approach to divorce, uh, despite that, it flies in the face of what God intended for marriage. And it's interesting, the disciples there, they're watching this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and they find what Jesus is saying about marriage hard to take. Uh, They find it hard to take that marriage is permanent and a lifelong bond. And so we get this in verse 10, we get this stunned comment in verse 10. Uh, His disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus, this marriage business sounds hard. It might actually be better just to avoid it altogether. Save yourself some grief. 
but the disciples' comment to Jesus, it actually produces another unexpected response from Jesus. This time it's not about marriage, but it's about those who are not married, those who may be single. Verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the one who can accept this should accept it. Now, to be honest, let's just, you know, all this talk about eunuchs is a bit weird to our ears. Um, it's really quite strange. It's taken me a long time to work out what I think Jesus is saying here. Um, I think Jesus uses, the, uh, uses eunuchs uh, to allude uh, to the, the sexual and physical aspect of singleness. Uh, so people who choose to remain single, for them to be celibate. And I think Jesus is saying here that uh, there are various reasons why someone might not get married. Some of us might be single by choice. It is the deliberate decision we have made. Uh, some of us might be single by circumstances. We may not have chosen that, but we find ourselves in that position. And Jesus is saying here, he's saying that if that is you, if either by choice or by circumstances, you find out that you are not married, he's saying that your position in his kingdom is no less, it is no way inferior because of your singleness. Jesus here is validating singleness as a God-honoring, as a, a fully orbed and completely satisfying way to live as part of his kingdom. And Jesus, he's doing it here with his words, but he's also validating singleness. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but Jesus validates singleness with his own life. You probably know, despite what the Da Vinci Code says, uh, Jesus wasn't married. Uh, and do you want to say that Jesus didn't live a full and fulfilling life? That he wasn't fully human because he was single? No. Jesus was single. And he lived a life devoted to God and his heavenly kingdom. A life that was complete in every way. In some sense, uh, singleness is a blessing to the church. Um, if you look forward to our future... In the new heavens and the new earth, there is no more marriage. We will all be single. We will all be worshipping God around the throne. And in some ways, single people remind us and point us to that future heavenly reality where our relationship with God will transform and transcend every relationship. But on the topic of singleness, again... Churches have caused much unnecessary grief. Churches have made people who are single feel incomplete. Uh, this can be because we often focus a lot of our time and attention and our programs on marriages and on families and on children. Or often churches have seen singleness as a problem to be solved. Or even individuals have seen the singleness of their friends and family as a problem to be solved. If only the single people would get married, then we'd know what to do with them. Or we glorify marriage and never speak about or champion kingdom-focused singleness as a great way to serve Jesus. Or even on a personal level, I know that a, a lot of us struggle with this. We surround ourselves with people who are at the same life stage of us. So if we're married and we have kids, we just surround ourselves with other people who are married and have kids and we don't know how to welcome 
uh, others into our life who might be in a different life stage or have a different life package. But I want to be clear, whether you're married or whether you're single, God deeply loves you where you are. He deeply loves you for who you are in Jesus. Marriage and singleness, they're actually both God's good design. And some of us, either by choice or by circumstances, have the opportunity to be unmarried for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, To have maybe more time or energy or focus, more relational capacity that comes from not being married, from not having children, and to use that to serve in Jesus' heavenly kingdom. Now again, like I said, you'll be dissatisfied that I didn't give you all the answers on divorce. I'm not going to give you all the answers on singleness either. Um, it's a, yeah, lots of disappointment all around this morning. I apologize for that. Um, but uh, this has been something I've been really wanting to do for a while. Uh, uh, friends of ours in Sydney run a, a most excellent conference called Single Minded. Um, and uh, it's coming up in July. Uh, and the whole conference is about having a positive biblical conversation about singleness within the Christian life and the Christian community. Um, and I'm keen to get a crew together to to do like a watch party of the conference. Um, and so it's the last Saturday in July. Um, we'll get the conference live streamed at Tory Street. Uh, and it's for everyone. It's not just for single people. It's not a meat market. It's not like, hey, come to a singles conference so that you can get married. So then we know what to do with you. That's not the point. Uh, it's about us having a grown-up conversation about what being single looks like in service of God and his people and part of the Christian community. Uh, and so anyone is welcome as well. Um, and so if you're keen, put on the comment card. I'll keep you in the loop for when that uh, ends up happening. But where are we? We've covered a lot of ground this morning. Uh, thank you for your patience. Uh, we've seen what Jesus has to say about marriage uh, and divorce and about singleness. And, and for a lot of us, uh, there is a real challenge for us this morning to accept what Jesus is saying. It's a real challenge for us. Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to trust Jesus with your life? Are you willing to trust Jesus with something as personal and as intimate as the way that you relate to other people, as your relationships? Are you willing to trust him with your marriage or your singleness? Are you willing to trust him with something as personal and something as intimate as your yearnings, your desires, your drives, your sexuality? Are you willing to trust Jesus with this? Are you willing to be like the little children who in Jesus found someone they could trust? See, that's the challenge for us. Are we willing to trust God in this? Are we willing to trust God in our marriage or in our singleness? Trust his plans and purpose for us in that way. It's a hard challenge, so let's ask God, uh, let's pray to him and ask for his help in this. Heavenly Father, we, um, we started this morning by singing that your word is good, uh, that is ever faithful. And Lord, sometimes your word might not be the word that we want to hear, uh, but we thank you for the truth that it speaks about ourselves about the brokenness of the world that we live in, but also of the hope and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus. 
And so, Lord, when it comes to marriage and singleness and these questions about divorce, Lord, we pray that we might trust you, that we might accept what you're saying for us and live in light of it. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, relate to and bump up against people who are in different stages or have different challenges to us, that we might respond to them with mercy and grace and kindness and gentleness and humility, for that is the shape of your counter-kingdom. And Lord, we pray all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.